Well, we're back with our now typical modern discussion, as we have on Civil Discourse. And in keeping with last week's topic about the fact that finance is at the heart of every American, um, really it comes down to one of the biggest debates that will take the 2020 election and has been a big debate since the 2008 election um, when Barack Obama introduced the Obamacare deal. Now, this fundamentally changed the healthcare field in the United States in attempting to nationalize the healthcare system more so than any other president in history. We had, you know, Medicare, Medicaid uh, in the in the 80s, but in terms of forcing everyone to get insurance, in terms of attempting to cut costs, the governmental solution was to force everyone to get health insurance and attempt to abolish or remove the private industry. Now, that's the argument that's going to be pitched in 2020. The original Obamacare package, just to be clear, did not abolish private industry. However, it was the largest step forward in doing that. The question is whether or not, not only is it popular, but can it be done? How was it done? Is it even right to do? Is it American? Is it constitutional? Does it make sense? And I understand and what is pitched on is the emotional argument. It says nobody should be denied health care. Well, if you go into an emergency room or hospital, they do not have the right to refuse anybody, actually. So uh, that first part is clear. Of course, the argument is, well, they can't pay for it, so maybe they don't go and, and get health care. Uh, and that's just not true by statistic-wise, you know, and it is one of the complaint about our hospitals is that the emergency room is filled with people who mostly are he here illegally that simply go to the ER because they can't be refused, and if the bill is not paid, then it is just spread out amongst other patients, which drives uh, healthcare costs up. Now, the other pitch is that it's going to be free, and that in the wealthiest nation in the world, we should all have just free health care, and that you have a right to health care, you have a right to treatment, therefore it should be free. Now, the idea of rights and inalienable rights comes from a fundamental Christian perspective, one that socialists do not have. This is because they simply don't believe in any religion. They believe in something that is known as a relativist theory that all viewpoints are basically equal and that there is no truth to life. This goes against both Christian doctrine and the idea in general of any sort of divine creator. So to hear the far-left types preach about rights is almost comical. Because if you don't believe in a god, well, you don't believe in rights. And you cannot make a sound argument for the rights of any individual if we're simply animals and the products of random 
consequence and an accident of nature. Now, of course, this is also where you get the theories that drive men to very dark tendencies because they feel as though no one is watching. Now, that's another argument for another day, but it comes down to the fact that healthcare as a right was not an argument until there was an argument to be had for nationalized healthcare. And the two go hand in hand because if the government is going to step in anywhere, of course, it needs the authority to do so. And in the United States, we have a government that is set up to simply protect rights that have already been given to us by God. Hence the First and Second Amendments, um, dealing more so with what the individual can do and what the government cannot do. And I think some of that perspective has been lost on a side note, that the Constitution is not what the citizens can and can't do, it's what the government can and cannot do. Regardless, the idea, the notion that healthcare is a right is an emotional argument, not a philosophical one. Because on the flip side, and something that the right argues, which often gets drowned out, is that you don't have the right to someone else's labor. This was solved here in the U.S. after the Civil War. This had been solved in Europe uh, years prior with the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom and eventually throughout the nations. This is very clear that you, if you have the right to someone's labor, you're effectively making them a slave. That because their labor has value, and because that value means something to you, someone gets paid for it. For instance, when you work your job, you are trading your time, which is valuable, to a corporation or company or individual, and for your time you are compensated. The more specialized you are, the more your time is worth, therefore the more you're compensated. Now, of course, there are other market factors in that, but the general idea is that healthcare itself is not something that you have carte blanche to, and I don't mean to sound cold, but just because you declare it right doesn't mean you get it for free. No one is going to refuse you service. No one has. However, they have the right to charge you for it. So the question is, if we're going to ram this through, if we're going to abolish private health care, if we're going to get rid of free markets, how are we going to do it? Because that's the interesting aspect of this. Nobody ever wants to talk about utopia, in, especially in the podcasting world and, and modern radio. We always want to discuss the dystopia. And so, as the hellish landscape is known as socialism, 
you'll recall a famous quote by Winston Churchill that socialism is only works in two places, heaven where they don't need it and hell where they've always had it. So the question is, how is this even feasible? Well, the left also argues that the rich will just pay for it. Those who have success and those who have money will just be taxed more because they need to be taxed more um, because they've earned more and it comes back to the Marxist idea of oppression and hierarchy, but there are other people out there who can explain that aspect better than I can and we'll leave it to them. Regardless, the ideas that allow someone to say we'll just tax the rich display a lack of knowledge when it comes to how exact how that works as a long-term plan and how taxation works in general in the United States. You see we've got you see we've got two aspects to our tax system. We've got the actual percentage that people are taxed at and then we have the brackets. So right now the top percentage is 37% and that's on incomes over 400,000 if you're married filing jointly. That means if you make more than $400,000 a year, the IRS considers you to be the 1%. And that's something that is not taken into account when politicians run around and declare that the 1% should pay for everything. Often people have this image of billionaires or as Bernie Sanders would say, millionaires and billionaires, and they don't pay any taxes, and you know only the little guys pay taxes, and that's just simply not true. Now, of course, some of them do minimize taxes. However, the idea that the 1% means only those who are super rich and so rich that they can afford to pay higher taxes is a fallacy. The IRS determines who the 1% is. And they could determine that, like they did in the 1980s, that the 1% is anyone that makes over $29,000. And then they could say, well, yeah, we're taxing the 1% at 90%. Except, you know, they've lowered the brackets and that means pretty much everyone's paying that much. Now, the idea that the top percentage doesn't pay anything is ridiculous as, as well. This can come back to the statistics that say that 85% of the nation's taxes are paid by the top 20% of its earners. This goes right in the face of those in the Sanders camp. Many of them, I'm sure, who have not studied finance to the point where they could actually comprehend what a socialist system would mean. But let's look at what we do have in place. We do have Medicare and Medicaid, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, already in place, and that's a form of nationalized healthcare and it's going broke 
experts say by 2025 or 2026, that Medicare, Medicaid will be insolvent. Now, you know no politician is going to run on taking that away. That would be political suicide. So what are they going to do? Well, that answer is simple. They're going to raise taxes. They're going to raise taxes to cover the program that is already broke, to kick the can down the road so it can be broke again. And then they'll just raise taxes again. And they'll keep claiming they're raising them on the 1%, of course, with the car launch to drop the brackets. But how could they pay for it? Well, if you're going to pay for this trillion-dollar healthcare program, and that's a conservative estimate, I think $6 trillion is the current marker, you could do it one of two ways. You could come in and confiscate the money in 401ks, for instance. After all, the tax has been deferred. So it's still owed on all of those dollars. And there's about $22 trillion worth of money in qualified plans across the nation right now. So there's nothing that would legally stop the government from coming in and applying a 1% one-time 100% tax on 401ks, qualified plans. Again, because so long as the tax is deferred, the tax is still owed. The next way they could deal with it, or this could be in addition to a qualified plan confiscation, is they could deal with inflation. And this would basically mean that they would inflate the dollar to such a rate they would make enough currency that they could jack the inflation rate to essentially mean that the money that they end up paying our creditors back with is worth much less than it actually was owed. So if, if for instance, and this is just simple math, you owed somebody $1,000 and you had the ability to deflate the currency, you'll pay them back that $1,000, but because you've created enough currency, it's actually worth much less. This is how we get to the point where a dollar today did not have, does not have nearly the same buying power as it did in 1980. Now, the last aspect of this debate has to do with government control. Are we willing to let the government control our healthcare decisions? Because if they are paying for it, again, they say it's free healthcare, but it's not free healthcare. If the money comes from somewhere, money comes from tax dollars. This means the money comes from you. So, what happens? Well, in the United Kingdom, they have socialized health care. It's called the National Health Service, or NHS. And the U.S. media didn't cover it very, uh, very much. They touched on it, but the unfortunate side effect of allowing the government to control your health care is that if somebody is too expensive, I simply won't cover treatment. So there's a little boy with a rare disease that could have been saved in the United States whose parents wanted to save him, naturally. 
but the NHS and their board said that treatment would have been too expensive to send him to the U.S., or Italy even had a treatment for his disease. But the NHS said this would have been too much, so they just said you cannot send your child to those countries for treatment. Even if you paid it for it out of pocket. Now this to me is a government overreach. I think if a parent wants to do, wants to do within reason something for their child, especially like save their child's life, they should have the right to do that. You may think otherwise, but I doubt it. Now the unfortunate end of that story is that the child died. There was a famous picture of guards standing outside the hospital to make sure that nobody stole the child and attempted to get a treatment. What the NHS had declared meant that that's what would happen. So by socializing healthcare, you give the government the right to declare who and what is expendable. And the last thing that it does is it kills innovation. Now this is because, again, not only is it cost-based, but cost-based in the fact that it's run on tax dollars and not either private investment or even public investment. And so innovations are lumped in with every other government expense. They are not prioritized. They cost money. And why would you, if you're not being paid all that much, why would you spend your hours trying to cure something when you could be in a more lucrative field? The reason the U.S. healthcare system has been known for its innovation is because, frankly, we have a privatized system. People make great profits on breakthroughs. There have been mega companies built on products, breakthrough medical products. There is great gain and investment in that. And so it entices people to come up with a product and come up with a solution. That's how basic business works, and that drives innovation. Without that incentive, you don't have the motivation. So the healthcare debate is complex, but any way you slice it, finance is truly at the heart of this debate. And this goes back to what we've been arguing, that finance is at the heart of every American, and that's not a bad thing. It means we're industrious, it means we're a commercial people, it means we are a healthy people. This has been the Civil Discourse Podcast. I am Kevin Prendeville, and in everything I do, I help educate people as to how they're unknowingly and unnecessarily sending tens of thousands of dollars away to the government, financial institutions, and Wall Street. And on, on average, we find anywhere from thirty dollars to $50,000 per year that people have no idea that they're sending away, both unknowingly and unnecessarily. 
And if we could identify that for you, is that a conversation you would want to have?